Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Many years ago, I was a volunteer firefighter and an emergency medical technician, and and on the first night that I went to a meeting, I I had no idea what to expect. I was the youngest guy there, and everybody else been there for a long time. So I go in, and they were starting a class on firefighting. It was a new class developed by the state of Washington, and of course now vo- even volunteer firefighters go through the same training that career firefighters do. So it was a little different back then. But we had a class. A couple of our guys had gone off to learn how to teach us to be firefighters. And for me, that was great information because I didn't know anything about it. So we sat there and and, uh, they gave us the introduction about what this class was going to be like and so on. And they said, are there any questions? And uh, one fella over here who was, oh, you know, almost old enough to be my dad at that time. I was only, you know, probably 20, 22, 23 years old. He said are we going to get a certificate when we complete this course? And I thought, I I wanted to stand up and say, what's wrong with you? We get to drive fast and squirt water. What in the world do you care about a graduation certificate for? (laughs) Tonight I'll be taking the Red Eye East to start a series of classes, both live and online, at Baptist Bible Seminary of Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, which will, Lord willing, end in a year or so with a master's degree. But the paper is not the goal. (laughs) That's why I told you that funny story about firefighting. I hope to get a degree, and there's a reason for that as well, because I can't go to where Helen Steele is and teach unless I have a degree. And so the degree is important, but I tell you what's really important. What's really important to me is I need to be taught constantly. I need to be around people who are more mature and more experienced in the word and the work of God so that God can grow me up. And I hope by extension that I will be better able to lead us on to greater maturity. Pastors and churches need to do the same things that individuals do, need to do, which is this. Not that I count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, many of us as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. Uh, Pastors need to grow Churches need to grow, and individual Christians need to grow. That's why we have been talking about these building blocks of righteousness. The foundation of the Christian life is the Word of God. It is, in my opinion, it's the only worthy foundation of life, period. There are other views of life and the world. There are other ways that people orient and organize their lives. The Word of God is the only one that I believe is worthy of basing your life on. It's the only one worthy of being a foundation for life. For starters, it's the only one that tells you in absolute guaranteed terms what you can and should do after this life. And that's an important starting point. But beyond that, it tells us how to live and it empowers us for life. The Word of God is the foundation of life. The chief 
benefit that the Word of God brings to us is salvation. That's a chief benefit because, number one, it does prepare us for heaven. If you've never put your faith in Christ as your Savior, if you've never heard those words, and maybe you don't understand, and I realize there's a lot to unpack in saying those words, but if you've never come to the point of understanding what it means to be truly born again and a child of God, we would love to sit down with you after church today and help you understand that because... That is what prepares you for eternity or life after this life. And it's also what sets you up to succeed in this life. Now, I'm not preaching the health and wealth gospel. For those of you that are new, don't be afraid. Success in life is honoring God. And honoring God results in a great life. Those of you that were here during Sunday school heard heard Helen Steele talk about all these things she does. Helen, is there anything else you'd rather be doing? No. The only thing that would make it better is if her grandchildren were also in Greece, right? Yeah. Maybe not too close, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Salvation brings us God's best life for us now. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The possibility of godly maturity means that we have the possibility of living in peace, of living in joy, of living in love, of living in kindness, of all of those things that are part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it all comes to us through salvation. This next row of truths has to do with God. If you're going to grab a hold of the life that God wants for you, the life that honors Him, you need to believe, first of all, that God has the only truth for life. There's a lot of other things out there that sound good. They uh, may seem to help in some circumstances, but if you're a Christian, you've got to commit yourself to God's Word alone for as the truth for life. You've got to believe that God has the power to enable change. I was so angry this week. I mean, I, I don't remember the last time I felt that angry. And you know why I was angry? Because somebody sat in front of my desk and had the audacity to tell me that things are not going to change in their lives. They both know the Lord. They, they both claim to be living for the Lord. And the fellow's got a great big fat Bible with the Greek interlinear laying out there. Nothing's going to change in our marriage. No, I just wanted to smack him. He doesn't believe this truth. And because he doesn't believe it, he won't try. If you're not trying to grow and change, if you're not trying to accept change and growth in others, it's because you don't believe God can really change people. This is not behavior modification. This is internal life transformation that results in new behavior. That is the most incredible thing that Christianity brings to the table of this life. Real change. Man. Thirdly, we got to believe that God will meet my needs. It's a challenge many times to look ahead and say the righteous path. Ooh, the righteous path is a hard path. And sometimes it is. Obviously, Helen, you're a CPA, right? Or an accountant. A degreed accountant, okay? Do you think she could be make, making more than 1200 bucks a month if she was working here in the accounting world? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. 
There are times, there are times, not for everybody, when God is going to say, look, here's the path to walk on, and it's going to cost you your job. Oh, can God meet my needs if I do that? You've got to believe it or you won't do it. God promises in the Scripture. And also God promises to reward our righteous living. Sometimes the righteous path looks like hard and difficult and, oh boy, I don't want to do that. And, and for the life of me, I don't know why we don't look into the future and go, the righteous path, man, I'm going to get God's blessing. I wonder what it's going to be. Because when we live like that, life becomes an adventure, not a drudgery. We've got to believe that. Now, there's some things that we've got to have situated in our own life. And the first is this. My life has to be focused on God's glory, not my plans. We all have dreams, desires, aspirations. Could be as simple as what you call normal life, you know, growing up, getting married, having kids, grandkids, whatever. Or it could be grandiose, like being the president of the United States. Is your life wrapped around God's glory? Because if it is, you are going to succeed in your life, period. I'll tell you that right now. Because God is going to make sure that your life always accomplishes His glory. What a great possibility is ours. You can fight this. You can have your own career, your own plans, your own dreams. You can fight it, but you cannot win if you're a Christian. God says, look, I want your life wrapped around me. My thoughts are Christ-like. We cannot have godly behavior without godly thoughts. You cannot live in peace without taking care of the anxiety in your mind with God. You cannot live in love if you have hate inside. So our thoughts have to be Christ-like. Our behavior has to be biblical. If we want to know how to act, it's here. If we want to know how to think, it's here. This has to be the plan for our life. The plan for our life has to be God's glory, Christ-like thoughts, biblical behavior. Now, today... We're coming to the last two on this list, on this pyramid, if you will. And the first one is here. And in the last four that I've shared, the last two and these two, are part of what I have termed the divine human cooperative in the Christian life. Look at Philippians 2.12, uh, please. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We do not earn our salvation. We do not do a bunch of good things that merits God's favor, so he will look on us favorably and take us to heaven. We come to salvation by faith in Christ alone. And God looks favorably on the sacrifice of Christ and applies that to us, and then we're saved. But once we're saved, once we are the beloved, as Paul writes to the Philippians, now we have some work to do. Not to earn God's favor, but to cooperate with his work of transformation in our lives and in his work of reaching the world for Christ. God will not change you without your effort. God will not reach the world for Christ through you without your effort. It is a divine human cooperative. He provides the guidance, the wisdom, the plan, the power, and you provide the shoe leather, and you provide the effort. 
And God works together with us to accomplish his purposes. Elsewhere in the scripture, we're called the fellow workers of God. What a great thing. God is not going to reach your family and friends for Christ without you or somebody speaking the words. God is not going to change you without that effort. And so he says, listen, you be busy now working out your salvation, that is working out the results of your salvation, of change and growth to Christ's likeness, because God is at work in you. And so as we come to the, to the end of this study, there are two things that go together, and we have to have both of them, not one or the other. Some people want to pray and not do too much. You know, they love to sit on their hands. Oh, I'm just waiting for God. I've had people over the years tell me they're waiting for God to tell them that something was wrong. And I, I wanted to say, uh, he's told you. I mean, they were waiting for a specific behavior that God clearly says is wrong. They're waiting for God to move. Well, God's already moved. We don't need to do that, you see. There's no need to pray about sin or to pray about righteousness other than to say, God, help me not to and help me to. But then we got to get up and get to. There has to be prayer. There has to be disciplined effort. On the other side of that coin, there are folks who want to give the disciplined effort and they think that the Christian life is all about them doing things and they forget the power of God. And these two things have to go together, but we're going to consider them one at a time. So the first is this. I am seeking God's help through prayer. And the first thing that I want you to understand about prayer is the privilege of prayer. Listen to this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way in which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The holiest is a reference to the very presence of God, and he's making a sort of a, uh, an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. In the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, there were, they could come in to a certain place if, if they were not a priest, if they were a worshiper, and then they would give their sacrifice to the priest, and he would bring it in further and offer the sacrifice, and then certain priests could come in further, but only the high priest once a year could come into a place called the holiest or the holy of holies, and he would come in with the blood of a sacrifice and, and offer it once a year, only only one man, once a year, came into a place that was a picture of the presence of God. It wasn't where God was. It was a picture of coming right into his presence. And, and the, the, uh, the author of Scripture here says, Now look, we have boldness to come right into the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Christ. Do you know when that high priest went in there, they'd tie a rope on his foot in case God struck him dead for being unprepared to come in. And they drag him out. That was a pretty, you know, God was saying, look it, I want to tell you something here. In my presence there is no sin. Perfect, complete righteousness. Don't you dare come in here if you're dirty with sin. Now, 
The great news for us is, when we believe in Christ as our Savior, our sin is washed away, and positionally before God, we are completely righteous and prepared to come into His presence. He says, because of the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that He consecrated, we can come right into the presence of God. And we can present our petitions. That's what we read here in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this boldly does not mean you march into the throne room of God and say, let me tell you a thing, God. Here's some stuff you need to be doing today. I asked you yesterday and you didn't do it. That is not the boldness he's talking about. He's talking about the boldness of confidence to come in to the king's throne room and say, Heavenly Father, I have a need. I have a problem. I have a challenge. I have a praise. I have a thanks. We get to come straight into the throne room of God and ask for His help so we can obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. What an incredible promise is that? I don't know a lot of rich, influential people. In fact, almost none, except Glenn. He's the financial manager of the water district at Birch Bay. That's pretty important, right? I don't know a bunch of rich and powerful people. I really don't. And even the people who I know that I think are kind of rich aren't Bill Gates rich. But I used to have a friend before he went to be with the Lord who, you know, he was living pretty large for the day, but he loved the Lord. And I used to manage the money of a Christian ministry down in the Seattle area, and part of it was managing some debt, and somebody called for some debt to be repaid, and, and I needed 5000 bucks right now for about three months. And I called up my friend, and I said, Gordon, I need 5000 bucks for three months. And Gordon said, sure, come on over here, I'll bring you a check. Man, that was a great, <laughs> you know. You get to go into the presence of God. Anytime you want, you have been prepared to go right up to the throne of the king of the universe. And he's asked you to come. He says, come on and ask me. Tell me what your needs are. Why in the world would you not take advantage of that? You've been made worthy and you've been invited into the throne room of the king. Are you taking advantage of that opportunity? James 3, 2 says one of the reasons, one of the contributing factors to our puny Christian lives is that we have not because we ask not. Do you have a need? Do you have a problem? Is your life stuck? Then the first question I want to ask is, are you praying about it? Are you asking God for help? It is our great privilege. Yes, there are some things we should be doing, but not until we pray. We need to ask for God's help. Now, what about the practice of prayer? What about the practice of prayer? Let me ask you some questions. And I didn't write these in your notes. You can, you can write down the one that challenges you the most. But here's a question. As we think about the practice of this great privilege that's ours, do you talk more to your friends or to God about the challenges of your life? 
Do you talk more to God or to your friends about the challenges of your life? Colossians 4.2 says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Does that sound like a casual attitude about talking with God? What's the first thing you want to do when something good or bad happens? Who's the first person you want to talk to? Uh, this last week, when I got angry, I wanted to talk to my secretary, who was on vacation in California. <laughs> Lovely Catherine was filling in, but has to be a little frame of reference for some of these things. Otherwise, when I vent, you go, hey, what's wrong with Pastor Dave, you know? <laughs> then I wanted to call my wife. And she, she didn't answer the cell phone. You know, she was working. <laughs> Figure that out, you know. <laughs> Who am I going to tell? So I went to lunch with Glenn and somebody else, and I, I told the other fellow first, and I told Glenn later. I, Boy, I was so angry. You know what? A little later on, I realized I need to talk to God about that. I really do. Who do you talk to more, your friends or God? Now, I, I know there's a sense in which we're around people and we're talking, and, and that's cool, but... Is there a go-to plan? A go-to plan for God? In other words, man, I got, I got something great. Now, I, I had great things happen this week, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not whining here. There's great things, too. And I told people about that, too. And I told God about that, too. But that's the discipline we need to have. I need to go to God first and other people second. Another question. Do you have a plan for systematically praying for all of your concerns. Do you have a plan for praying for Helen Steele? I'm sure everybody who was here in Sunday school is going, well, i got to pray for Helen Steele. Now, what's your plan? You see, if we're going to pray, we need to be systematic. Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. You know what the word everything means in Greek? <laughs> everything! <laughs> Yeah, it means everything. Are you praying about everything that concerns you? When, you're, when you don't have any concerns left, that's when your prayer time should be done. Now you say, well, Dave, my, con my concerns won't be taken care of by the end of the prayer. They can be taken care of in your heart, even though they might not be resolved in your life. Do you have a plan for systematically praying for all your concerns, all your family members? We, we pass out that prayer sheet at the first of the month. It'll be in the bulletin next week. The prayer sheet will be in the bulletin next week. Are you using that? This week I talked to somebody and they go, I, I, pray, I pray through that list of people. I said, yes, that's great. To some extent, the things that are happening are due to that person who's praying. Do you have a plan? Another question. Do you have an ongoing conversation with God? Pray without ceasing. <laughs> now, obviously God knows you have to talk to other people. But there seems to be this emphasis in the scripture in, in having sort of a, an ongoing conversation. I talked about this before with phone texting. You know, we're texting people all the time, the younger generation, shooting out messages here and there and there. Why don't you text God tomorrow? I mean, are we, are, is there an ongoing conversation? Is it natural for you just to say, thank the Lord, and to mean it, not just say something, you know? Is there an ongoing ability to say, Lord, I need help? 
an ongoing conversation? Is there an ongoing worship service to God? In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for Christ, in Christ for you. Is there an ongoing worship service? Does fear drive you to prayer? Because if it drives you to anxiety, you're missing the boat. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, I've never used this verse about prayer in in church before. I know it. Because when I looked at it this week, I said, man, that's where people are today. Oh, boy, the Lord is going to come back. Things are terrible. And, you know, boy, the president's name spells the Antichrist in Scripture and all this stuff, you know. Great. Are you praying more? Are you just living in fear? Fear should drive you to prayer. What are the products of prayer? Well, there's two that I want to look at. And first one is this, spiritual power. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, the Apostle Paul says, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Boldness. Do you hear Helen Steele going in to the government officials? No, you are not going to do that. You are going to do this. (laughs) Yeah! And they go, okay. There's boldness there. There, There's something at stake there. The cause of Christ is at stake. There can be boldness if there's a prayer life. You can get up from your prayer time and go out and do something for God or do something in your life. There can be spiritual boldness. The Apostle Paul said, pray for me so that I can preach good. Man, do you want to be spiritually bold or do you want to just sit back and do nothing? Boy, I hope you want to be spiritually bold. I I hope you want that power of God. When we pray... We ask God to do things. And if we have a godly desire in that prayer, when God does something, we give him praise. Or to put it another way, God is glorified. God wants him to show and not me. This is an important part of prayer. It's the chief thing in prayer that we've got to get squared away. When I ask for something, I need to be saying, am I praying for God's glory? Remember earlier on the pyramid, is my life centered around him, or do I just want stuff? If I want spiritual boldness, I need to pray in a way that God gets glory. Scripture says Elijah was a man with passions like us. In other words, he was a normal human being, but he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. In other words, God was saying, look, Elijah was nothing special, but he prayed and God worked. Man, I want some of that power. I want to see God do some things. The other product of prayer is spiritual peace. Philippians 4, 6 says, Give all of your concerns to him and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God is just as miraculous as the the power of God displayed in some other way. Now, we need to balance this prayer life with this. Am I giving disciplined effort? I need to be in prayer about all the things in my life. 
And part of my prayer life also needs to be focused on the things I need to do. And the first thing I would say is this. Diligence requires knowledge. Some folk live the Christian life the way I play golf. I have no idea what the right way to play golf is. But I do it over and over, and I hope for a miracle. Uh, There's a golf course that will remain unnamed, so you don't go out and play on it. Where I, you know, I, I have been out of the habit for about three years now. It's been a long time since I played any golf, but... I used to go out on Mondays because nobody was there Monday morning. And I'd get up there and there'd be signs that say, only take one shot. Well, I look around, there's nobody in 100 miles. And I just keep hitting because I think if I hit enough, I'm going to hit a good shot. You know, and once in a while there's a miracle. But truly, I don't know how to do it. I, 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 you know, I got to keep this arm straight, whatever. I, I don't know, but I keep doing it. If you're living the Christian life that way, you are not going to reach godly maturity. The only way you can get to godly maturity is through the knowledge of the Word of God. Diligence requires knowledge. Knowledge from the Word of God. Secondly, with that knowledge, diligence requires honest self-evaluation. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The word soberly is also used in a literal way to talk about drunkenness or soberness. It's that kind of a word. But the idea here is one of saying, look, take an honest look at yourself. God does not value self-deprecation. He doesn't value people whose chin hangs on the floor and they're always going, I'm no good, I'm terrible, blah, blah, blah. No, no, he just says, take an honest look at yourself. Who are you? What are you? Where are you at in the Lord? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, those verses I read at the beginning today, he said, look, we've all made some progress. As many of us as are mature, let us have this mentality of constantly pushing on. So the Apostle Paul wasn't saying, I'm no good, I'm nothing. But he looked around and he said, you know, I've made a lot of progress. But there's a lot of progress still to be made. Honest self-evaluation. Now, honest self-evaluation only comes here. Because your heart is wicked and my heart is wicked by nature. And it's deceitful by nature. And so by nature, I want to look in the mirror like the old TV show, The Fawns, you know, the happy days. And he'd, he'd go to comb his hair and he'd go, uh, uh, bah. you know, it's perfect. Can't do anything to it, right? I do that now too. You know, the, the less hair I have, the more it stays in place. Honest self-evaluation is here. You need to look into this mirror every morning just as sure as you look in that other mirror. And so honest self-evaluation can only come by the Word of God. The Word of God is the basis of all growth. We must know it and use it. It's good to model yourself after some mature believer. But it's not good enough because the model has to be Christ. I tell you what's really wicked, and a lot of Christians fall into this trap, is they look over there like that Pharisee when he went to pray on the, at the temple, 
and there was a tax collector. The tax collector was over praying, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he wouldn't even raise up his head and look around. And here's the Pharisee going, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. You see, you, you probably are better than a lot of people in the world. I don't have any doubt about that. You know how much that matters? Zip. Because the standard is here. When you reach up to this standard, <laughs> you'll be in heaven. Because <laughs> that's when God is going to finish the perfection. So until then, until then, we've got to keep going to the Word and keep looking at our lives and saying, God, help me to do better. Diligence also requires openness to input from other people. Um, Proverbs 9. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. You understand what he's saying? If you go to a fellow and say, Phil, I think you could do better, and he goes, take a hike. Well, he's what the Bible calls a scoffer. Now, a lot of people won't say take a hike, but they think take a hike. If you want to call yourself a wise man or a wise woman, you need to fit into this category here, which is when a rebuke is given, you say, thank you. Thank you for pointing out what I have been missing in my blind spot. Now, does that mean you take every single rebuke of every single person and you go and just change your life constantly here and there? No. But it means you take their input along with the Scripture and you look it over and say, wow, you know what, they're right. They're right a little bit. They're right a lot. And you take that input and you say, God, help me to be a better person. None of us, none of us can afford the luxury of thinking we don't need somebody's input. If we're going to be wise people, we need to receive what God sends our way. I can still picture a wonderful servant of God named Bob Blankers on the new roof of the Nooks, or the emerging roof of the Nooksack Valley Baptist Church, showing me about, telling me about roofing. I think that was the first roof I ever worked on up till that time. And, uh, it was a long, the building is two or three, the, the roof was two or three times as long as this. So you got these long rows of three tab roofing and you do them about four at a time, kind of go along and start another flight and so on. And uh, we're standing there looking down and you can look down the row and you can see plain as day, they aren't going straight, they're, they're creeping up the roof. And you know what's going to happen at the end, they're going to be going like this. And Bob says, now, here's what happens, and here's what you have to do. You have to take a line, you have to drive a nail, you have to, you have to put her down there, and you've got to snap a line every so often to keep those rows going straight as you go up. And I went, oh, okay, okay. And I'm telling you, when I did my roof on my house, I snapped a line more than once because I did not want to have to take my three tabs off and put them back on some other way. There's knowledge to be gained I have a pastor friend who used to build houses before he was a pastor. And when we were working together on a, on a ministry project, he showed me how to do sheetrock uh, tape and mud. He said, now here's what you do, and here's the first coat and the second coat, and here's how you do this. And, and uh, you know, I'm really slow at it, but I can get it done. And he taught me that, and I'm thankful for that knowledge. But you know, when it came time for him to be teachable, he came to a crisis in the ministry. 
Don't want any input from anybody. Boom. And I thought, friend, we're friends. I'm not going to come in there and beat you over the head. I'm your friend. Nope. Walk away. Folks, we got to be in the habit of receiving it. Man, it's hard. I know it. I know it. Believe me. But it's good. It's good. Diligence requires planning. Diligence requires planning. I became a consistent reader of the Bible every day when I picked up a rule from another person at a seminar. I, was, I, can, I can't remember exactly. I think it was at Teen Leadership Conference, and, and I was getting more systematic in my daily time with the Lord. I was a pastor, and uh, this fellow said, I have a rule, and the rule is no Bible, no breakfast. And I went, I can remember that. And I added another rule to it, because I had a habit at that time of getting up and turning on the NBC Today show and just letting it run while you walk around the house and all that. So my second rule was no Bible, no media. And that reminded me just enough, oh, that's my rule. I have to get up and have my Bible time before I have my breakfast time. Now, I'm not saying that's the greatest rule in the world, but do you have a plan for spending time in the Word every day? If there's no plan, there will not be an accomplishment. Do you have a a prayer notebook, a devotional journal, something to help you? I have a plan for working out. I have a plan for doing my homework for these classes I'm going to be taking. I have a plan for giving to the Lord's work. I have a plan for not spending time alone with another woman other than my wife. I have a plan for preparing to preach. I have a plan for confessing sin. Every time I sin and I realize I've done it, I confess it. But I still have some areas that need plans. What are your plans for righteousness? Diligence also requires practice. Practice. Um, one of the images that comes to my mind when I think of practice is one of those first lessons I learned as a firefighter. They took me out to the fire truck and they pulled this big suitcase off of the, uh, off of the truck. And in it was one of those big air tanks that firefighters wear and all the gizmo that goes with it and the face mask, and they said, oh, here's how you put it on. You pick it up like this, you sling it over like that, you tighten this, you put this on, then your helmet, and so on. And there's a whole plan for that. And they said, now do it. Now do it faster. And I forget what the time frame was, but there's a certain time frame. You have to be able to do it. Because when you roll up on a fire, and it's all in the red and in smoke, you got to get that thing on, and you can't be fumbling with it. Practice makes prepared. Now, are you practicing your righteousness? Nobody is perfectly righteous right out of the gate. But when you read the Word, you learn some things to do, you're praying about it, and now the situation comes up, and, and you either fail or succeed. If you fail, you say, God, I've got to have a better plan next time. And you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and pretty soon you have a new righteous habit. A new righteous habit because you're going to be diligent in practicing. One last thing. Diligence may require accountability to others. Listen to Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, if he's overcome in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
If you have a challenging area of life in which you are not succeeding, and it's a clear scriptural thing that needs to change, maybe you need to reach out and say, could some of you mature brothers or sisters help me? We've done this over the years. Usually it happens when somebody comes into a crisis. I had a man in Tuckwilla that fell into a certain crisis, and, and he was very repentant, wanted to change, but we knew he was going to need some people to keep encouraging him. So we found four men in the church who were mature men, and each week they, they rotated once a month, and they called him, how you doing? They talked together. They shared their own struggles. They, they, and he knew that every week... They were going to be saying, brother, how you doing? If you're serious about change, diligence may require this kind of work. Now, let me just take a few minutes to try to look at this whole thing. And let me try to give you some examples, maybe. And, and I just tried to pick out what I think are some common things. I'm not picking on any person or any age group here. But, but let, me just, let me just start out with something that's real obvious to us. Okay, So we're looking at this, and our, our goal is godly maturity. Our goal is for a person to be like Christ. Now here's a circumstance. A young girl will find her in a place, or for that matter, a young adult woman will find her in a place where she says something like this. I can't say no to my boyfriend because if I do, he'll leave me. Now, think for a minute, would you? We don't have time to really take a lot of input. Maybe we'll do that sometime. But think for a minute. If you were looking at this, trying to help that young girl get a handle on the spiritual issues that need to help her make the right decision. You see, our goal for her, and hopefully her goal, is to live for the Lord. But she's struggling to do it. She knows that she's supposed to keep herself for marriage. She knows that. Duh. Keep yourself for marriage. But what are the things that are going to help her make that decision? Well, one of the things that comes right to my mind is this. Will God reward my righteous living? And will God meet my needs? She looks ahead and she goes, man, I like this boy. Or maybe she would say, I love this boy. But if... But if I don't do what he wants, he's going to drop me. And then where will I be? I'll have no relationship. If we're talking to that girl, we need to come along and say, you know what? God says he wants to meet your needs. Do you understand that? We go into the Word and say, look, do you see what all God wants to do? John 10.10 says he wants to give you an abundant life. Not only that, but he says, if you'll do the right thing, God, he will bless you. He will reward you. Many Christians completely forget those two truths when they come into that kind of a challenging crisis. Certainly there are other things we could talk about. We could say, are, are you really focusing your life on bringing glory to God? And really, we could go through this whole pyramid with that young lady. How about this? When the boss criticizes me, I can't wait to get home and have some beer. A lot of beer. Now, what's that person struggling with? Uh, don't be drunk with wine. The scripture says that. Okay? 
But what's their real struggle? Part of their struggle is they don't have the truth for life about this area of who is supposed to approve of me. When the boss criticizes me, I just crumble and I just feel terrible and I just can't wait to feel better. Really? Hey, you, do you know what God says about work and about what you should be doing? And, and God says you can please Him even when you can't please other people. Are you doing all things heartily as, from, as to the Lord? And, and this fellow can get his mind around the fact that, you know what, the boss, the boss is just an unhappy fella. And I really am doing my best. And so I can be at peace. I don't have to go home and get blitzed to feel peace. What about this? Surely God wants me to be happy. I don't know how many times I've heard that as a primary driver in people's life. God wants me to be happy. And if I stay in this situation, I won't be happy. And that will justify my leaving this situation. Really? You don't want to stay put and see the miracle of God meeting your needs in a hard thing? You don't want to stay put and see if God really can change people or places or things? You don't, you don't want to see what God can do? See, because God never promised us happiness as a goal that we pursue. He promised us joy as the result of righteousness. One for the young people. We got a little balance over here today. Got some young ladies over here. Although you, you need about you need about three more, really. You know, you're going to have to sit over here, dear, to balance that up a little bit. How about this? My parents are so unreasonable that if I obey them, my life will be terrible. Now, let me just say, I've known some unreasonable parents. None of yours. They're all perfect. I'd say this, every parent is unreasonable on some days, including the one that's talking to you. Okay, I know that. And that's why, as a child, you've got to believe, God's going to reward my righteous living. I don't need to take my own path and run out here in disobedience and do my own thing to have fun in life. I need to follow God's path and honestly throw my cares on Him and let Him give me His joy. Well, I hope those are some examples that will help you see perhaps how to use this in your life and in other lives. I went to Costco this week. I had something to buy that was a more significant purchase than a couple of loaves of Pugliese bread. And so I was looking for a deal. And I had my Costco rebate for the year, you know, and so I kind of was intent on buying some at Costco. So I go into Costco and I'm looking for this thing. And lo and behold, here's a good one with a, re with a rebate already in place, a discount from the manufacturer. I said, boom, I'll take one of those right there. It was the best deal around. Ah, I jumped on it fast. Friends, I want to tell you that maturity in Christ, getting godly maturity through this path of righteousness, is the, the best deal anywhere. It's a good deal. It's a great deal. And I want to encourage you to pursue it in your life.
Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us how to be righteous. Because through your righteousness comes the blessings that we are craving in our lives. Help us to commit ourselves to your path, to your way. Help us to find your results as we walk with you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.